Well, let me see. Oh, that sounds like shit. Can you hear me now? Hello? Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Okay, okay, good. It took a minute. <laughs> Sorry, no. This, so the rebooted Skype has these other weird fucking features. I figured it had something to do with Skype, and I'm like, I don't know. I just updated it last week, so it should be okay. Yeah, well, I, I only use it when I talk to you. So. Yeah, same here. Oh my god! I, I, <laughs> except for like some hot chick from Brazil, like <laughs> no, no. When they turn it on, it's like Australia wants to be your friend. I'm like, yeah, right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> they want to hack your computer. Lock. <laughs> yep. Kusha Beda Marco Lucia wants to be your friend. Lock. You don't know how many of those emails I get in certain places. Like, really? Come on, people. Girl. Hey, really? <laughs> Oh, well, you're a handsome bastard, so, yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> All right, so we're good to go? We are good to go. All right. Do you need me to check this again, or are we okay? This I sounds think, fine to me. Yeah, it sounds good. It sounds booming, actually. Okay. All right, let's go. All right. You're listening to the Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. You're much embattled by tech issues today. <laughs> Essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Frank Sinatra on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Good evening, and welcome to the inaugural first episode of the 12th season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell, enjoy me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, the Megan of Sleeves, Virago of Vituperiveness, and man, having a lot of trouble with his headset lately, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, tonight, like I said, we'll be doing Sinatra. I should say that since we did the Eastwood show a couple of weeks back, I was actually able to see Coogan's Bluff, which, you know, I don't want to say too much about it, but it was, I really think that was the direct, perhaps uncredited, inspiration for TV's McCloud, whose first season was very much worthwhile. Mm. Did you notice that? You've seen that movie? Yes, yes, yes. So anyway, back to the topic today. Born Francis Albert Sinatra in lovely downtown Hoboken, New Jersey, well before it became a gentrified millennial yuppie haven, and was something of an Italian immigrant conclave and, let's be honest, slum. Frank himself was always embarrassed of the place, and if his upbringing was ever referred to, it was always spoken of in some very denigrating terms by him, which makes the town and state's pride in his being from there, and even naming streets and such after him both ironically clueless and hilarious. Growing up in the early 30s, when Bing Crosby was less the schmaltz king of boulderized middle American hallmark-ready crap like he was doing in the late 40s and 50s, then a revolutionary hot jazz and swing pioneer, especially with his early band The Rhythm Boys, with a voice unlike any other of his era. Girls and women fainted over the newly dubbed crooner, not for his rather Jimmy Stewart-like looks, but that molasses-thick, buttery baritone with a wide range of smooth stylistics. And Frank didn't just model himself after him, he wanted to be him. Possessed of a lighter, more lyric tenor with an amazing degree of breath control, Sinatra, even before becoming a stylist par excellence, to this day mostly unparalleled, matched his predecessor in wooing temporary wartime widows and proto-bobby soxers alike, and may in fact have topped his idol in building a tremendous following of mostly female fans. They were the Elvises or Beatles of the day. Only Frank, unlike the others, improved his craft throughout the 50s, from Columbia to what I think are his best years on Capitol, to his peak to shark jumping time on his own reprise level. 
But before winding up the first Vegas draw and cheesy performer for blue-haired gamblers with his impromptu appearances and surprise guests with other singers, comedians, and entertainers he drank and caroused with, most famously the boozy true baritone Dean Martin and the indefatigable Sammy Davis Jr., an extended group known as the Rat Pack, he started, like Elvis, who we also did a show on in this respect, being drawn into the world of filmmaking. A few final points of interest that might shed a little light on the man and may well inform the backstories in the films we've been discussing. He had some well-known mob ties and lived as hard as he played, with run-ins with reporters, and we're talking about violent ones, <laughs> difficult relationships with both friends and lovers like the vampish Ava Gardner and waifish whack-job Mia Farrow, and even in his earliest days, jumped from one big band and arranger to the next, from Harry James, who gave him his first break, to Tommy Dorsey, both of whom he broke things off with rather acrimoniously, as well as clashing with Dorsey's star drummer Buddy Rich, who I feel very lucky to have had performed my grammar school auditorium back in the 5th or 6th grade, which I still can't believe to this day. The guy was amazing, and instilled a love of drumming not only to myself, but a classman who actually went on to become one himself. He dropped his main arrangers, Billy May, Nelson Riddle, and Gordon Jenkins, when he went to reprise, which is part of the cause of his decline in quality and descent into syrupy schmaltz. Sinatra was never drafted for World War II and was officially designated 4F. The PR story was some nonsense about a perforated eardrum, but the actual Army records considered him, quote, not acceptable material from a psychological viewpoint, implying some serious emotional instability that anyone who paid attention to his subsequent life and career can suss out rather easily. And Frank actually produced a few of the films he starred on, at least once taking the director chair. I uh, kind of jumped over saying hello to you again because of all our tech issues, but how are you doing today, Lewis? <laughs> I'm doing good. I, I really wanted to do a Frank Sinatra show because, um, all right. So you mentioned it a while back. Yeah, it's yeah. a while back. And, you know, some people might laugh. You know, I get it, the younger crowd, the uh, the metal crowd, you know. But Frank, Frank Sinatra is an amazing singer. He's an amazing singer. And a surprisingly decent actor. Yes, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Yes, I, I was trying to push that kind of lightly, <laughs> <laughs> push, uh, push that tour your way. Because, uh, you know, a lot of people, Frank Sinatra, oh, you know, that guy, the Rat Pack, Mafia, you know, blah, blah, blah. No. Look, he he was like, uh, you know, after the Bing Crosby time, yeah, Frank's voice was very light. And he was like, pseudo Crosby, I guess. And and Frank Sinatra got into his own over a period of time as a singer. And it's funny, I was at, don't laugh, I was at a, uh, walking by a church don't ask <laughs> flea market and they said oh we're getting rid of records oh i know you you like records what do you have mint frank sinatra from the 40s you Let's know yeah. i have a, a good copy from my uh grandparents i guess of come fly with me and i think one other album so yeah 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 so i was like oh sure we don't want any of these take them thank you <laughs> so i was able to listen to all those and there's a you know i had other things from the 60s and 70s he yeah he's a stylist and uh, the thing is the guy is so interesting as a singer I, you know don't pull me apart for this don't kill me <laughs> uh, you know all right here's how i see frank sinatra i see frank sinatra as a singer and a stylist, as a guy, as he aged, he got into this new thing, whereas he altered his sound yes. to, to be almost spoken word singing. True. And Spricka song. <laughs> yes, yes. And almost Dylan-esque. And then we got this thing where, you know, guys, 
years later, people didn't like Lou Reed's voice. People didn't dig Lou Reed, you know, post or Velvet Underground or post Velvet Underground. But it, it, it's a heritage. It goes all the way back to Frank Sinatra. This is my belief. I hesitate, though, to compare Sinatra to either Dylan no, or no, Lou no, Reed. No. But, but, but I'm saying, though, it's, it's a heritage. It's you wouldn't have had that without that. Oh, no, true, totally true. Yeah, I'm not comparing them, but I'm saying... Well, you can, but it's like a four stretch. <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's, it's a four stretch, but I'm saying it's just amazing. Look, he was a young guy. He had a, His voice was a bit high, and he he was really into that uh, young Danny Kaye, young uh, Fred Astaire, all these other guys of his time period. You know, he was singing with Tommy Dorsey's jazz band. He was a jazz singer. But over a time period, he really grew into himself. He did. But we are not talking about Frank as a singer, mm-hmm. although that will probably come up. Uh, we're talking about Frank as an actor. And, you know, people will denigrate him, whatever. He's done some very, very, as far as I'm concerned, very impressive stuff. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't put him up there with like, the great actors of our time. But, you know, compared for a singer, he's really rather good and surprisingly good. Thank you. We're not even talking like an Elvis level. We're talking about this guy actually could have been taken as a, I don't even say a typical 50s or 40s actor. He's actually a little better than a lot of guys that you can think of. Yeah. You know, he tends to be a little bit one note. That's true. But, you know, and in terms of the singing thing, I just wanted to say, too, because you brought that up. He did develop a lot over time. One of the big things about Frank was, okay, yes, if you listen to his all like VJ discs or whatever the hell, they're, they're okay. You know, you can certainly hear him in there, but they're really light tone and, it's not a hell of a lot different than some other singers of that era, you know, like the Paul Whiteman Orchestra or whatever. But what happened is he really learned a lot from Harry James. I mean, I really think Harry James was the, his sine qua non of that era because what he learned was Harry was a trumpeter, and he learned breath control from him. And I don't mean singer breath control. He was trying to sing like a trumpeter plays, and that really made him stand out, and it really developed his voice. And when he got a little older, I think his voice got thicker and deeper and became more... It was never like Bing Crosby, but, you know, he wanted to be. But it got a lot more buttery, and that's kind of when, like I say, he was a capital, was kind of pushing into the 50s, maybe the uh, yeah, early to middle 50s, before he went to reprise, and that stuff is golden. And he gets a couple of tracks, you know, here and there from his early reprise stuff there in that same era, and then it just kind of turns into schmaltz, unfortunately. Part of being because he dumped a whole bunch of his arrangers who were so good. You know, Billy May was fantastic. Nelson Riddle, you know, he's back and forth, but he did some amazing work with him. And one of the other things is, for better or worse, he also learned a lot from Sammy Davis Jr., believe it or not. Yes, because he did. Sammy yeah. was not just the entertainer that everybody remembers him as, which he is. You know, he's more of a all-around entertainer, dancer, singer, Broadway-type guy, whatever, comedian, than just a straight-up singer. And that's why people consider him, okay, he's an entertainer, and kind of throw him in that block. But he was also very much a jazz stylist, I guess. People don't give him enough credit. He actually really knew stuff. His rhythm, his, his the scatting that everybody loves to talk about with Ellis Fitzgerald, whoever... Sammy was so good with rhythm. I mean... We, we should do a Sammy show one day. <laughs> well, but most of his music, since he only did a couple of films, like the Salt and Pepper films, which are great. There's loads of fun. Uh, yeah, and, of course, the Rat Pack films. There's a couple films, of but, things out there, yeah. But, yeah, no, I love Sammy. I honestly do. He's good. A lot better than his reputation, especially in the earlier days. He got a little cheesy later on, but, you know, that's part of the shtick. You know, the Candyman or whatever the hell. But before that... Candyman says... <laughs> the guy really could 
work. I mean, he wasn't like the world's greatest singer in that natural tones, but he was a stylist par excellence. And Frank learned from that. You know, sometimes the better, sometimes the worse, because he was going in a weird direction once you get into the 60s. But he definitely learned some things, and you could see his voice and his styling and everything else, which he already had developed to a very, very stellar point, got better. So, yeah, that all needed to be said when we're talking about this. So was there anything else you want to mention about before we go into the movies themselves? Or? Yeah, yeah. Before we go into this, I want to say that in the, I guess I had my Ticketmaster stuff somewhere in the late 90s, right before Frank took very ill. I did see Frank Sinatra live on really? stage, Radio City. Oh. And I was like, why the fuck not? Because I've never done this. Yeah, I'm going to go. And the opener was Shirley MacLaine. Don't laugh because, like, hey, fuck, I've never seen Shirley MacLaine before. You know, what the hell? And uh, Shirley's show was, you know, Shirley dancing and, you know, doing her thing and stick. And here's what I remember about Frank in those days. Mid to late 90s. I have a ticket stub. I can look it up. So Frank comes out with two bar bar stools. By the way, he's cool, right? And one... (laughs) He has a bottle of Jack, unopened, and you can hear it go, cracks it open. And the other bar stool, it's a tall bar stool, so he's on there. He's like, you want to hear me sing tonight? Yeah, everybody goes crazy. And he takes a swig. He goes, by tonight, this this bottle will be empty. (laughs) And you know what? I have to say, his son, Frank Sinatra Jr., was a band leader. He was... (laughs) I was glad I saw that because I was like, how can a guy that toasted sing like that? <laughs> I mean, he, he looked toasted before he came out. <laughs> the only two live things I remember related to Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. was my folks actually had gone to see Sammy at the Theater in the Round, which was the thing that they used to have up in Nanuet. And that was actually the whole shtick. Uh, later on, it became some kind of like Bible thumper church or some shit. But in the 70s, they saw people like Rosemary Clooney and Tom Jones. I have the programs from these still. And, of course, I mentioned about Clooney the other week. She basically looked out there drunk and told her to go fuck themselves and cut the show short. Sammy did something very similar. He also kind of went out there and did a couple numbers, you know, Mr. Bojangles or whatever the hell. And was like, eh, you know what, fuck y'all, and left. And they were like, what the hell? And my father was pissed off at Sammy Davis Jr. for like a decade after that. But Sinatra, though, the only thing I remember, and my folks had nothing to do with this one, I remember being in the papers, and it was on the news and everything else. He had done a show, I'm going to guess it was somewhere in the late 80s, maybe 88, over at um, the Meadowlands, whatever the hell they call it these days, Presidential or whatever. And uh, <laughs> he uh, decided, I guess, or maybe he was just loaded or whatever, and he's like, ah, screw it, I'm not going to show up last minute. And the guy came out, the promoter or whatever, this packed auditorium of people that want to see Sinatra in his golden years, and <laughs> said, well, Frank's not going to be here, but, you know, Frank Sinatra Jr. is going to be here. And everybody walked out. Apparently, the paper recorded, like, three people stayed. Because, <laughs> you know, Jr.'s not the same talent that he is. <laughs> yeah, but I tell you, though, that Frank Sinatra show, Radio City, was... Uh... <laughs> It was memorable because, you know, he's on a stool. Mm-hmm. And I I had 93, 90-something. I'd never seen something like that before. I knew it was him I'm coming to see. Yeah. You know, I already went through Shirley's opening set. And I was like, wow, you're going to have, like, a tall seat. <laughs> a fifth of Jack. <laughs> At his age. What you're going to swig from? 
fuck? <laughs> I'm like, you're the man, <laughs> you know. Yeah, he's like, well, you all know this song, you know, and, and you were doing a song, and, and no, he didn't disappoint. He always uh, actually, don't laugh. I went to the, uh, you know, where the artists leave the yeah. entrance, uh, the like exit. stage door kind of thing, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I wanted to see him leave. So, you know, Frank Sinatra left with this fucking leather jacket with the American flag on the back. <laughs> like a biker. <laughs> I couldn't get a. Yeah, I couldn't get a picture with him, but I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, I was like, dude. <laughs> yeah, back in those days, it was like, it was cool because, yeah, you know, yeah before we went through all what we're going through now. But um, I don't know. I don't have Alzheimer's. I don't forget the lyrics to my own songs. <laughs> you remember what he No, he didn't. He didn't. Now, even he in, like, what was it, 1980 that came out with New York, New York? And he keeps repeating the same verse if you listen to it. He forgot the lyrics. Well, yeah, it's Alzheimer's. I don't think it was Alzheimer's so much as he's playing plastic. Well, that's what it is. See, I did a report back in the college about, you know, sort of one of my psych courses, psych biology type thing. It was on Korsakoff syndrome, which is basically what Alkies get from drinking too much and the parallels to Alzheimer's, which is, you know, from a different derivation. But the end result is exactly the same. The mechanisms of operation are the same. So basically, if you're a super lush and, you know, do it all your life, basically, you're going to wind up exactly like an Alzheimer's patient, even if you don't technically get Alzheimer's. I think that's what happened to Frank. Do, do, do you get that from me? <laughs> Not so far, but who knows? Ooh. Give it another 15 years, who knows? <laughs> No, two years. So what's the first movie we're going to dive into? Okay, so Frank did a couple of little things like cameos in Tommy's band or you know, Tommy Dorsey or just himself and so on and so forth through the 40s, you know, things here and there. But I think the first real movie, quote-unquote, that he did that we're going to care about is Double Dynamite from 1951. Oh. And now we come to another film justifiably forgotten. It's Only Money, which was retitled to a big tits joke by company president Howard Hughes as Double Dynamite. Hmm, Hughes, big boobs. I wonder if big brassy Jane Russell's in this one. Sure enough, the Noel Neal with manly coat rack shoulders and Jane Mansfield-worthy memories is a perpetually PMS-afflicted bank teller who makes hapless and apparently breast-obsessed fellow teller Frank Sinatra's life a living hell. He wants to raise from his shithead robber baron of a boss so that he can marry this obnoxious shrew. It's perfectly obvious that there's only one appeal about her, but he's ready to throw all in to get some of that. Of course, she's disinterested. Don't you love those shitty Code-era movies where people have to get married to awful people just to get past a kiss? And worse, her crap math skills show his register at a shortfall of tens of thousands of dollars. Hence, the rest of the film, where Frank gets involved with a bookie and hits it big on the ponies at the local OTB, wastes it all on lavish gifts to get in Russell's pants, and winds up with the feds on his ass for not only his presumed theft of the bank money that never happened, but his guilty-looking sudden windfall of a similar amount at the same time. Groucho Marx, one of the funniest and easily the sharpest wit among the anarchistic Marx brothers, whose first seven films from the Coconuts to A Day at the Races remain some of the wildest and most subversive, often laugh-out-loud films of their day. That surprise scene where he throws the poodle in some old bat's lap, and I think the latter film, Heavy in Tears, and it was about to start his long reign riffing on contestants, looks, quirks, and low intellect on You Bet Your Life, is wasted in an unfunny role as a mugging waiter who winds up as Sinatra's misadvisor, and Frank just plays a hapless stooge throughout. But it's all just the biggest understanding. And then there's a stupid caveat where Russell blabs about all the shit Frank brought it to the IRS. Did I mention there's songs? And I don't mean a reprise of the nihilist anthem, I'm against it, from Horse Feathers. There's no clever wit here, that's for damn sure. <laughs> so what's your take on it? I have not seen this, and I 
surprised you did, but kudos to you for seeing this. I, you know, <laughs> I should get kudos for sitting through it. <laughs> you get kudos for sitting through it, yeah. Now, I, I haven't seen this film, and I'm actually, I had no idea it even was around on video or whatever it is. And uh, it sounds fun in a way of... Well, if you're watching it at four in the morning or the whole I was watching it, it's like, oh, boy, this really sucks. But it's got a weird charm to it. But Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's it sounds like a, in a weird, charming way it might be worth watching. But no, I've not seen this. So you're ahead of me, my friend. <laughs> so then he does a soapy melodrama that I think he might have even won an award for, which is From Here to Eternity. I did not bother with that. That's not my field. But did you need to speak to that one? Yes. Uh, so... <sighs> Yeah, with post-World War II, and uh, it's a, a heavy drama picture, but it was kind of controversial because it dealt with sexuality. Oh, really? And was directed... Oh, really? No, we're going to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but I'm fascinated. Like, really? Yeah, okay. So it was directed by Fred Zinnemann, who was one of the more hardcore filmmakers of this time period. You know, another guy who went from television to... Uh, feature films, as like many American directors of this time. And so this had like an amazing cast. Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Cliff, Deborah Kerr, Donna Reed, Sinatra, Burgess Meredith, and and Ernest Borgnine. And we're going to do a show on him, folks. <laughs> yes, we are. It's, it's down the line. And George Reeves and Claude Aikens. I mean, this, this fucking cast is something else. Here's the thing, though. It's like World War II boot camp, and it's about, like, sadistic. We've seen this done over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, sadistic boot camp. Yeah, what's this? Kubrick did it very mm-hmm. well. And, um, what was that one? We covered it. It was in the 80s. Uh, yes, 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 we did. Oh, they got kind of suicide and all that, yeah. Yeah, it's like people forced into unbelievable but sinatra was so good he was nominated for awards and he actually was that full metal jacket full metal full metal jacket yeah that was it yeah and sinatra was nominated best supporting actor which is kind of a fucking blow mine for frank sinatra i mean he basically just started acting and he already got that so yeah no he he was in a couple of things doing the singing bits doing singing things I think it was in the Kissing Bandit or something. I was like, <laughs> right. This is a Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Cliff, Deborah Kerr, Donna Reed movie with Frank Sinatra. He was so fucking amazing in his role in this film that suddenly Frank Sinatra, the singer, is nominated for Best Supporting Actor. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> and it really needs to be seen. It's a heavy picture. It's a heavy picture. Here's the thing with Ernest Borgnine, because some may say he plays himself, or some may say he plays variations of himself. It all depends on how you look at it. Yeah, sometimes he's doing evil, sometimes he's doing funny, but yeah. Yeah, it, it, but I don't know. I've seen so many countless Ernest Borgnine films. <laughs> yeah. It's like Ernest Borgnine as, <laughs> as himself. <laughs> as himself playing the evil despot. But from here to eternity is is a ter- I wouldn't say terrific. It's a really hard movie to watch. Got great performances all around. And the standout, which probably blew people's minds at the time, was Frank Sinatra. Okay, and speaking of suddenly, that's the next film we're gonna be talking about, nineteen fifty four. 
Lewis Allen, undistinguished TV director with a handful of film credits and best known for lensing episodes of Dan August and the Invaders, the former discussed in our Burt Reynolds show, drops this cheap-ass C-grade home invasion slash crime flick featuring Sinatra as a hitman for hire. Sinatra and his goons arrive in a small hick town that the president is booked to make a train stopover in, the oddly named Suddenly California. Supposedly they're G-men scouting the place out in preparation for this event, but after they're allowed into one family's home, they turn out to be gangsters paid to pull a decidedly high-grade hit on the commander-in-chief. There's a whole lot of banter and attempts to persuade Frank and company not to go through with it, as you might expect from several Bogart films of like, inclusive of The Petrified Forest, The Desperate Hours, and Key Largo, all from a Humphrey Bogart show. But the expected turns of the table don't happen until a TV repairman, Catherine O'Hara's unsuccessful brother James of Darby O'Gill and the Little People from a Sean Connery show, the aforementioned Desperate Hours and the Driller Killer, arise, susses out the situation, and rigs the TV to electrocute the hitman. Disney voiceover actor Paul Frees and Sterling Hayden of Doctor Strange Love and Venom from our Stanley Kubrick, Klaus Kinski, and Oliver Reed shows also appear, but Sinatra really can't pull this kind of thing off. Bogart was a master at this sort of thing, and others like Jimmy Cagney and Edward G. Robinson practically made this home invasion gangster role their trademark. But Sinatra, despite his real-world mob connections, just doesn't have this in his wheelhouse. He's overly chatty, a lageria-afflicted apologist for his own thoughts, much less actions to a bunch of boring strangers, inclusive of a nagging, frumpy proto-Karen, a crusty old geriatric right-winger, and an obnoxious kid dressed like Pugsley, if not Dennis the Menace. You can't buy him as determined and resolute, much less tough. You come away with the impression that Grandpa could have taken him at any time while he was soliloquizing at interminable length. About the only thing you could say for it is that Johnny Legend's gray market label actually pulled off the only colorization of a black and white film that actually worked, and which, moreover, is the preferred way to watch this stinker, if you must. Blech. Yeah, well, it's just a, um, it's a Sinatra film that didn't work for many reasons. We don't know what the real reasons are. You know, you got Sterling Hayden and other people involved in it, and, you know, it was for a production company that was trying to make, I believe, Sinatra more more uh, present for audiences that were into Heart of Fear. You know, you look at the time period, you know, things were changing around this time. You know, and, and you know, I, ha- I have to say, Frank did a fine job in it, but at the same time, it wasn't the right role for him. And he was, he just wasn't up to it. And he was overshadowed by a supporting cast of mm-hmm. people that we saw in other lesser films. Very weird movie that over the years, though, has gone from public domain back again to public domain. It's a very bizarre film. Actually, Frank Sinatra comes, comes of course, very unlikable in this. So yes. I'm not quite sure what was going on with this. Yeah. And like you said, he gets upstaged by a bunch of, like, Beyond C-grade actors. Yeah, beyond <laughs> C-grade actors. So uh, he does a couple more films, including some musical stuff like Guys and Dolls, and I think The Tender Trap is one of those. But then he does The Man with the Golden Arm. Uh, yeah, I wanted to speak of Guys and Dolls. You know, you're not a big... Musicals? No. I, I think the only musicals I ever could sit through was 1776, just because I saw it in 76, and it was great. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> theater like was right on the street. You're, you're sitting out there in Philadelphia, and that's where I saw it. There's like a sunken thing, kind of like a Greek theater, you know, those like theater and around type things that are built into the concrete with a little bit of a alcove overhang in case it rained. 
And there they were doing this, and I've never lost that. So I always liked the, the movie they made from it with Henry DeSilva and all them. And the other one I like a lot is Jesus Christ Superstar, because I grew up with that too. Yes. You know, some of those rock and roll songs in there are amazing. But, Judas's part, you know, that's fantastic. Well, I was too young to appreciate Guys and Dolls, because it's 1955, and I wasn't born yet. But, yeah, I caught up with it later. So <laughs> this is the weirdest fucking thing you're ever going to see, folks, because... <laughs> Yeah, Marlon Brando, who can't sing, who was probably coach. <laughs> well, most likely coach. And Gene Simmons, who couldn't sing, but was... From Kiss, he can't sing. <laughs> well, yeah, most likely coach. And, you know, and, you know Joseph L. Mankiewicz was the director, screenplay writer, and, you know, Damien Munyon's stories, so on and so forth. It was a big hit on Broadway, which I saw it numerous times, by the way, over the decades. But I have to say, it's vastly, for me, a vastly entertaining thing. <laughs> How do you say Sinatra and Marlon Brando <laughs> in the same movie, singing? <laughs> and But you know what? It's, it's a very cute, very interesting thing. I always thought Gene Simmons was like this like secret hottie. Yeah, for me. yeah, yeah, guy, yeah, you don't laugh. You've seen so many Gene Simmons films. It's very close to the Broadway show. Help, Stubby K and Stubby K. Stubby K, who I actually saw perform live, don't laugh. Really? <laughs> was it in uh, Vegas? No, no, he was in one of these Broadway reboots. Sheldon Leonard is in this thing. He was a guy that created, like, so many shows for television. You know, Guys and Dolls is very entertaining. If you don't know know about it, it's like, I'm not even going to get into it. <laughs> uh, so, musicals aside. Man with the Golden Arm. Man with the Golden Arm. Otto Preminger, the most absurd if best remembered the Mr. Freezes on TV's Batman, longtime lover of both Gypsy Rose Lee and Dorothy Dandridge. Longtime lover of both Gypsy Rose Lee and Dorothy Dandridge, and director of films as disparate in quality as Laura and the Hard River of No Return from our Robert Mitchum show, drops this curious drug drama film like a cheap noir. To this day, released on DVD in a chintzy public domain style quality, complete with muffled, scratchy over the telephone sounding soundtrack and a print that's far from pristine. This one apparently caused the studio some consternation with a lot of back and forth with the code over its being okay for release due to the subject matter. Kim Novak, who famously slept around with the likes of Sammy Davis Jr., Wilt Chamberlain, a fellow we did a show on David Hemmings, and Zombies Richard Johnson, who she briefly married, is best known for her sultry, quote, witch, really just a beatnik, in Bell Book and Candle, and her dual role in Hitchcock's Vertigo, both in 1958. This comes three years earlier and hardly uses her icy charms to best effect as Sinatra's supportive stripper ex. For a girl in her profession and of her noted looks, she seems kind of dowdy here. Sinatra's an ex-con looking to be a big band swing drummer a full decade after that went out of fashion. Even the soundtrack here is filled with small combo hot jazz leaning bebop. Unfortunately, he also just recently kicked the habit, and a pair of local gangsters, one of which is original TV Mike Hammer and Carl Kolchak himself, Darren McGavin, who we spoke to in our Dan Curtis in the 70s show, and he's as Louis, yeah, and he's dressed ridiculous. He's like an old barbershop quartet type with a fat suit. He puts like a pillow under his stomach. 
<laughs> or trying to get him hooked again so he can work as a card sharp in their speakeasy-style gambling operation. He's also hampered by a shrewish and decidedly dowdy wife who fakes being in a wheelchair, supposedly from some car accident he got them in while passing out loaded, but it's all horseshit to manipulate him into waiting on her hand and foot, and she hates the idea of him becoming a drummer besides. The only thing enlivening this bleak and depressing shitfest is Arnold Stang, the Eddie Deason or Gilbert Gottfried of his day, who was a ubiquitous TV presence on shows and commercials from the 50s through the 70s, and even appears to have turned up in a Spider-Man power record of note. We encountered him in a supporting role to Arnold Schwarzenegger in his first film, Hercules in New York, discussed in a show on Arnold, and here he's a decidedly small-time hustler who hangs around Sinatra and is the closest thing he's got to a friend. It looks and sounds worse than a print of DOA or Detour, and isn't half as interesting or watchable. So the idea of seeing Frank Sinatra needle-popping horse aside, why is this piece of shit so wildly overpraised again? Fuck this shit, give me an ooey bowl over this kind of maudlin weepy any day. I'm sure your take is different. What do you think about this one? Oh, I disagree. I disagree. It's uh, take take somebody like Saint, <laughs> take some like like Saint Sinatra, sorry, <laughs> Frank Sinatra, <laughs> and, and Saint Sinatra. Maybe all praise him. I've been down to Hoboken. You know, I don't live far from there. I used to work with a well, he was a gay guy, but he was so into Sinatra. I mean, he bought the briefcase set, and he would go around. He, we actually had a lot of shows that we put on, and he would do. I never took a picture in front of his house. Hmm? Why the hell I never did that? I will do that now. <laughs> so, anyways, directed by Otto fucking, I'm the heavy director, Preminger. <laughs> I have to say this, seriously, all kidding aside, I thought Frank is pretty freaking terrific in this as a, as a junkie. You know, his thing wasn't addressed that often, especially in this time period, 1950s, mid 1950s. The problem is, it's a bit downbeat and it's a bit it's a bit like okay we're pushing the envelope here like you know he's one of the most popular singers in american music do we want to present this guy as a washed up junkie <laughs> yeah just out of jail yeah, as a junkie just out of jail and it doesn't matter who else is in this film it was just like i don't think it received you probably not half as of yet received due compensation as a, a pretty decent film. I think it's a pretty decent movie. But any movie directed by Otto Preminger, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the time is the time is still yet not right for someone to reappraise that stuff. I remember Kier Delay telling me once in an interview, yeah, he worked with Otto Preminger more than once. He said, I hated him. <laughs> <laughs> He's not the only person to say that. I've heard that before, yes. And I remember Kier Delay said, he said to me off the record, which I actually published on the record, <laughs> forgive me, they say never to think ill of anyone. I think Elevato Preminger. <laughs> you know, that's actually why they kept having different Mr. Freezes on Batman, because he was such a prick, they couldn't take it. <laughs> so they yeah, kept substituting yeah, the Mr. Freezes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a prick. He was a prick. He was horrible to work with. Yep. And so interesting, you know, that, that Frank worked with a guy like this, but I, I'm sure Frank wanted to do something different. Next. So, next up, High Society. Yeah. Wow. What an atrocity. Some clown named Charles Walters, whose only recognizable films are Gigi, which he didn't even get director credit for, and the unwatchable Easter Parade, made the brilliant decision to remake the much-beloved Cary Grant screwball comedy The Philadelphia Story as a fucking musical, complete with a five-minute blank screen opening so you could squirm through the interminable schmaltz overture. 
seriously, this is like Jackie Gleason's orchestra by way of Montavani. The suck levels are off the charts. Oh, then when things finally start to approximate an actual film, we're subjected immediately to Louis Armstrong tomming it up for the white folks as he was prone to do after his early far superior hot five days in the back of a cab, a grinning and a growling away. Yeesh. An aging Brink Crosby takes the Cary Grant role, only now he's a, quote, successful musician, and Sinatra takes the Jimmy Stewart role of the obnoxious reporter covering the impending nuptials of Grace Kelly in the Catherine Hepburn role. This is the voice of doom. This is to tell you that your days are numbered. Oh dear, one of the servants has been at the sherry again. I will say that while I like Stewart in this role, a sentiment I only shared for his trio of Hitchcock films where his wholesome image is subverted if not completely inverted in various ways, Sinatra was a stronger choice to drop so much snark, and you have to be blind and deaf not to think Grace Kelly, again, only really desirable in her Hitchcock films, especially the erotically charged to catch a thief, was head and shoulders above the shaky voice, pompously prudish Hepburn. But Bing's days were at least a decade or two behind him when he was working those Max Sennett comedy shorts, the great films like We're Not Dressing with the always stunning and talented actress and comedian Carol Lombard, and of course Holiday Inn with Fred Astaire. Sadly, this was the era when he was reduced to pale imitations like the abominable remake of said film White Christmas with a geriatric Bing and rumored queen Danny Kaye vie for the dubious charms of noted drunk Rosemary Clooney who told the audience that the show my folks went to see her Go fuck yourselves before storming off the stage a few songs in. It's kind of sad. Sidney Blackburn of How to Murder Your Wife and Rosemary's Baby, which we talked on our Roman Polanski show, and Louis Calhern of the Marx Brothers Duck Soup, Hitchcock's Notorious, and the Blackboard Jungle fill out the cast. It's a note-for-note if poor remake of a classic screwball comedy of a decade or two prior, but the humor feels comparatively bolderized and the casting is weird. Sinatra and Kelly's game attempts to make pearls out of this sow's ear being the only reason to sit through this sadly all-too-typical postcode pre-autorist Hollywood shit smear. There's a reason why we seldom cover films of this era, and despite a few big names in the cast, this is a perfect example of why. What's your take? Yeah, this one does not work, and it's probably one of the reasons why you don't see it mentioned that often in uh, Frank Sinatra or Bing Crosby. Or Grace Kelly. <laughs> or Grace Kelly, yes, sorry. Or Grace <laughs> Kelly or Celeste Holm or Louis Armstrong credits because it's just, it's a misfire all around and you know what you know you can't have everything you know it's i did watch this and i was like what the fuck <laughs> that was my reaction but the like, joker God, and is i love wild. the philadelphia stories huh? much better did you see that which one joker is wild oh no i missed that one. Oh yeah so 1957 joey lewis now, this is interesting. He's a nightclub singer and comedian, more most famous for like opening his wide mouth, his mouth wide, and going. <laughs> you know Joey Lewis, if you. I was thinking Joey Brown, but yeah, it could be the same guy. Yeah, no, Joey <laughs> Lewis, and and Frank. Wasn't he the voice of Snaggletooth? Or they modeled him on him. No man. <laughs> and and. Exit stage right. So, yo, Frank is in this bio picture with Mitzi Gaynor, you know, Gene Crane, you know, Eddie Albert, Beverly Gold. I mean, these are familiar names to people from back in the day. Especially if you knew Noir with Gene Crane. It's directed by Charles Vidor, you know, I'm probably related to King. And it's a pretty heavy picture because, but here's the thing, though. So we have Frank, who's known as amiable presence in films at this point. And the singer playing a kind of decadent, 
comedian. And, and while people liked it, at the same time, like, this is not the Frank Sinatra we want to see on screen. And so I think that had a big, big impact on its, on this film's indifferent reception. Reception, thank you. So you'll probably also want to touch on Pal Joey. I didn't bother with it. Yeah, Pal Joey's based on another Broadway thing, you know, Frank Sinatra, Kim Novak, they had to read a Hayworth for the movie. Oh, nice. Uh, oh, nice. <laughs> hey, I like Rita Hayworth. You know, Have you seen Laura? Come on. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I, I've seen various incarnations of Pal Joey over the years. It's okay, but he did win the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy for this movie, so that's something. <laughs> uh, hey, you know what? It's, uh, I don't know. Pal Joey's never been one of my favorites mm-hmm. of these kind of gangster-ish Broadway musicals. But Sinatra holds his own. I, you know, it's all right. So next up is Kings Go Forth. My father was a very great man. He was also a Negro. And so hangs the crux of this war film in wolf's clothing. A for-the-time fairly forward-thinking, but decidedly cringe-inducing by modern standards. Where I was brought up, Harlem near 125th, they were on one side, and we were on the other. I don't know why, except a lot of people need someone to look down on. I think they do. We covered this one in depth during our Tony Curtis show, but it's set in the latter days of World War II in the Alps region bordering both France and Germany. They seem to have a lot of downtime between shellings and never actually encounter the Nazi troops. During one excursion, Sinatra meets and falls for pretty Natalie Wood before her mother warns him that she's... (gasps) part black. Frank actually walks out and disappears for a week after that. Finally come to some form of a census, he returns to quarter once again only for his bromance army buddy Tony Curtis, a rich ladies man who tried to bribe his way out of the draft to move in on his date. Since he's a lot younger and better looking, speaks French, knows art and plays a mean swinghorn at the club he winds up sidelining recovering racist Frank who plays third wheel to all this. She asks him to tell Tony her big secret, which, unlike Frank, he has zero issues with. Tony checks that Sinatra isn't serious about her, which he demurs about like an idiot, and it escalates to the point where Curtis puts in paperwork to marry her while Frank mopes. There's a stupid twist where Tony balks, claiming it was all just a cheap fling. Sinatra decks him, and via instant deus ex machina, Tony immediately dies in another shelling, leaving a one-armed Sinatra to go crawling back to get sloppy seconds he could have easily locked in for himself exclusively if he weren't a shoegazing racist fuck roll credits. You're a good man, Sammy. I'm a little better than I was a week ago. While credit has to be given to both men for crossing what was until the mid-60s a very firm and dangerous color line to cross, unless you're an insult Nazi wannabe mega shit, this whole affair comes off rather cringeworthy and distasteful. For its error, it's to be applauded for holding some progressive sensibilities, but the bottom line here is that nobody comes out smelling roses, and there's always that stupid haze code slash religious asshole, there must be a price to pay bullshit, that ruins America's cinema as a whole from around 1935 to 1968, rendering decades of Hollywood film absolutely unwatchable. As part of a mixed-race couple, quote-unquote, myself, this shit really puts me in a fighting mode with those come-at-me-wolverine clothes extended. So, while to be genteel about it, I don't fault the writer and cast for making the effort. No, I can't recommend this one, except as an oddity in all three leads' resumes. Oh, it's, def- it's definitely an oddity. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, Natalie Wood always was this was me, what was she playing, a French girl? No, French Creole, so, I think, yeah, like French Creole, yeah, and... and She's always buzzing me. <laughs> oh, she looks great. <laughs> and, you know, it's an interesting movie because, you know, you got this dual thing between Frank and Tony who are probably behind the scenes buying for, like, who's got the more cajones. <laughs> but it's interesting, you know, Frank loses an arm and he comes back to her. 
So I think that's a sweet thing, but it's a very weird movie. And, and just, I don't know. It just really didn't, it really didn't hold forth with me. But I, I was impressed with Frank's performance in this. I have to say that. Yeah. So the next one I'm going to go to is Never So Few. You know, Danforth is a very small world. I'm not sure I can even spell democracy, and I don't know what the big picture looks like. But I do know that you've got a big mouth. We cover this one in far greater detail in our Steve McQueen show, but suffice to say, an all-star cast has trouble salvaging this absurdly racial slur-filled war film set in Burma during World War II. Essentially, the Allied forces, which include Sinatra, hard-living Steve McQueen, and racist Navajo Charles Bronson, are working <laughs> with the natives against the Axis Japanese invaders. There's a nearby contingent of comfortably living officers who appear to be RAF, as they include Peter Lawford and Richard Johnson of The Haunting, Zombie, and Deadlier Than the Male, the latter pair from our Lucio fucking... <laughs> excuse me? That was a good typo there. Lucio fucking... Uh, Lucio Fulci in Eurospot shows. <laughs> Lucio fucking Fulci. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Autocorrect. And a rich Italian, Gina Lola Brigida, who's married but cocktease Sinatra, who woos her with lines like, What do you want tonight? Lasagna. And tell your boyfriend you're moving down the social scale. We'll keep you barefoot and pregnant on the edge of town. Learn to cook. Ubiquitous film agent and apparently also porn director James Hong and Star Trek's lovable George Takai appear sans credits. Taken in the right mindset and either not in mixed company or with those who have a great ironic sense of humor about this stuff, alternately jaw-dropping and a hilarious, ridiculous film where even the ostensibly progressive-minded hero of the tale is a decidedly old-fashioned misogynist and everyone else either ultimately skewers or is skewered by more racial slurs than you'll ever hear anywhere this side of a Trump rally. I enjoyed it as a bizarre coffee table book of a film like you'll never believe these folks are all in this and every one of them drops some real head slapping howlers but yeah it's uh, a piece of work <laughs> so what's your take no it's, it's not as good as it should have been it's not as good as it could have been it's not as good as it should have been <laughs> and they uh, i can't play i i don't know what went wrong with this but no oh, look at the cast nacho lola original offer mcqueen richard johnson brian donlevy james hong who somehow got a star on a Hollywood Walk of Fame, even though he produced porn movies. But we're not going to address that, right? Um, so, <laughs> and Macau from Conan. Yes. The most memorable thing he ever did. So, this <laughs> too. When you say his name, it's what I think of. Hey, Mako, Conan. Yeah, Mako. In the beginning. And George the guy who and Charles Bronson. Come on, man. But he's like it's supposed to be a Navajo, but he's like a racist shithead, which is hilarious. <laughs> and Dean Jones before became a weird kind of guy. But uh it's kinda of, kinda of terrific bouncing cast, but it's not a great movie. Yeah. Sorry to say. So Ocean's Eleven. One of the original Starfucker projects, yeah. this one tried to include the entirety of the extended rap pack. Not only Dean, who go on to the fun Matt Helm series, and Sammy and Peter Lawford, who do a fun pair of salt and pepper films, but throwaways like Joey Bishop, Wacky Shirley McLean in one of her 25 lives, Sinatra Sackmate Angie Dickinson, and hanger-ons and oddballs like the Joker Cesar Romero. <laughs> Red Skelton, Noir and Policio Teshi regular Richard Conti, George Raft of Some Like a Hot from a Tony Curtis show, and Don't Ask Me, Ask God host Norman Fell, also a Bullet, Charlie Varick, The Stone Killer, Cleopatra Jones in the Casino of Gold, Strip to Kill, and a synth quanon, Bud the Chud, as we address many of these shows in our Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson, Joe Don Baker, and Black Exploitation shows. It's a big budget, strangely overdramatic taste on a heist film, with Sammy and Dean singing at any given opportunity, and an elaborate plot to loot five Vegas casinos simultaneously on New Year's Eve. 
Various conspirators infiltrate the casinos and even take jobs as garbage men, cause a citywide blackout, and pull it off until Cesar Romero saves the day for the Vegas mobsters who run these places by nailing the plotters for a cut. In the end, they outsmart themselves by trying to pull off one last double cross, resulting in the money getting cremated along with one of their dead pals. Um, yay, justice is served? I honestly always hated this film, despite its reputation as a swinging rat pack picture. Aren't they cool and hip? Nah. It's depressing and kind of overlong, if not boring, actually. Not so sure the George Clooney ones were that much better, although they were somewhat more watchable. But the Sandra Bullock Ocean's 8 sure as hell was. I actually liked that one. So what's your take? Oh, it's it's watchable. For me, it's interesting. You got, like, it's overloaded with Rat Pack stars. You know, Rat Pack being, like, the people hanging out with... Or sleeping with. Sam and <laughs> and Sammy and Peter Lawford, Joey, and... <laughs> The cast is like, who was hanging out with Frank back in the day? Uh, we're talking circa 1960 in Vegas. It's okay. It's watchable. It's, it, you know, Henry Silva. We didn't mention Henry Silva's in this. And Henry Silva passed yesterday at 95 fucking years old. God bless you, Henry Silva. That guy was in everything, though. Yeah, he's, he's been everything. <laughs> Henry Silva's show coming up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you uh, never know. We could. I, I don't know how we could do that, though, because he was... The problem was it would be as long as the Roddy McDowell or Donald Pleasant shows. <laughs> yeah, well, well... I'm a little worried about Borgnine, honestly. We have to cherry-pick there. <laughs> if we have to, yeah, we have to cherry-pick that one. You know, it's, but uh, maybe split into, I don't know. Henry <laughs> Silva is a very interesting fellow because in, in my eyes Harry Silver was this guy you know I don't know where I saw a Sicilian I, I always thought he was Puerto Rican heritage you yeah know, I always thought he looked Hispanic even though he is obviously Italian and you know he went to Italy and he did he did so much good work and then he went where the money was paying you know yep did a lot of stuff in Europe a lot of spaghetti a westerns a lot of roles yeah. as Indians a lot of roles as mobsters and police attaches yo if you're looking <laughs> The thing is about this picture and the sequels to follow. If you're looking for uh, where where the Euro Policioteski actors got uh, casted, you got Richard Conti in this. You got Henry Silver in this. It's very interesting. You know, this is a heist film. It's not one of the best heist films. With it's well known. Yeah, it's famous. I enjoyed it for what it was. It's just, like, super depressing and maudlin. <laughs> and there's a lot of singing and a lot of wasted time. It's, you know, it's the rap I don't mind singing. It's all right. So, Sergeants 3. Despite starring in several films in various combinations, most likely Dean Martin's solo spy comedy Matt Helms series and the two Sammy Davis, Peter Lawford, Salt and Pepper films, as mentioned before, there really are only two films that started the entire core rap pack of Sinatra, Martin, Davis, Lawford, and Joey Bishop. Ocean's Eleven, and this one being it, aside from group cameos and one or two others. It's well known that star-fucking mob boss wannabe Sinatra ghosted poor <laughs> semi-talent Lawford over <laughs> refusing to escort his brother-in-law JFK to Sinatra's place, but the real story is far more understandable. Sinatra was in with and very much indebted to the mob for his entire career. That's kind of common knowledge. He was also relevant to the story, in tight with Capo Sam Giancana, who was then a target of the feds. According to the actual bugged phone calls from Giancana's line, Frank was boffing Lawford's wife in order to get an in to her brothers, John and Bobby Kennedy. They actually have Sinatra on tape saying to Giancana, I'll keep fucking this bitch till I get something going. 
<laughs> Bobby, then Attorney General, heard the tapes and cut JFK and all White House and family ties with Sinatra immediately, hence Sinatra getting pissed and cutting Lawford out of the Rat Pack. Frank really was a piece of shit, wasn't he? If you're wondering why we went into all this in the course of discussing this film, it's because there's not much of a film to discuss. This film was apparently lost and forgotten for decades, and if you see it on its lone home video release as part of a terrible four-film set it was only worthy entry as the Manchurian Candidate, you'll understand why. Oddly directed by John Sturgis of Gunfight at the OK Corral, The Satan Bug, and Ice Station Zebra, this is the most unfunny, turgid, western-come-supposed comedy, in quotes, you're ever unlikely to see. Felicia <laughs> Tetchy Regular and Baddie from both weird Aussie vampire cult Santal Contori film Thirst and Shorky's Machine from our Burt Reynolds show, Henry Silva gets made up as a rampaging Indian with some weird, barely coherent rationale for killing off all the paleface in the area. In the one memorable, if ridiculous, scene of the movie, Dean and Sammy, who plays an escaped slave who's a Civil War cavalry fanboy, uh, <laughs> already shaking my head, wander into Silva's big hideout, which is a cheap cave set with a huge devil mask and a handful of chintzy Halloween store skulls, right before the cult comes in. Half of them do a hilarious pseudo-war dance where everybody participating does different steps Spice Girls style, and others just wander about. And Silva and his pal, also wearing ridiculous Halloween masks, give a dumb speech about bringing Fauna back by killing off the white settlers or some shit. This is a terrible film, and an embarrassment to everyone involved. Film like an episode of The Monsters, and not even that pathetically, quote, amusing. This film should have been burned, so it could never have been rediscovered and released. Possibly the worst film of its type ever lensed. Next. <laughs> What's your take? <laughs> no, I can't defend this either. It's just not a good movie. And and you're right, though. It was, it was at a time where, uh, I guess, Frank Snatcher was owing debts. Yeah. You know, I pay him off, but his next film role is probably one of his best. Yes, I agree. The Manchurian Candidate. Voiceover man Paul Fries narrates this political intrigue and thriller from John Frankenheimer of terrorist thriller Black Sunday, eco-horror prophecy, and Don Johnson versus a proto-maga in Dead Bang. Sweeney Todd and the mirror-cracked Angela Lansbury, the latter from our Tony Curtis show, is a domineering bitch of a mother who, worse, is a communist agent who manipulates her war hero son into being the leading candidate for president on a far-right party ticket with the aim of getting him in power so he could use emergency powers to immediately turn America into a fascist military state. Hello? Anyone here in parallels to the last five years here? Mm-hmm. Ding dong. <laughs> Things are slightly altered from Trump and the MAGA takeover and rebranding of the Republican Party in that our agent provocateur has also been hypnotized into being a sleeper agent and assassin by a coalition of communist Russia and communist China when his and Frank's unit was captured in the Korean War. There's a great scene where the allies are sitting there in front of a lecture hall of Ruskies and Chinese commies, and he's ordered to strangle his best friend while they're all brainwashed in the scene. They still extant greatest enemies of the free world. In the audience, there's a bunch of old bats at a garden party. Aren't they sweet? Sinatra is the sergeant-at-arms whose recurring nightmares clue him in on the plot, though officialdom blows it off as PTSD, until a tout denouement where our beleaguered whip mama's boy of a Manchurian agent is about to pull the hit on his rival that will make him the Republican frontrunner for president and bring down America and democracy once and for all. Wow. 
60 years later and bar actual assassinations, communist Russia working hand-in-hand with communist China. Remember Putin and Xi Jinping chatting away at the Olympics last year? How about the joint spying and cyber attacks coming from both on an increasingly recurrent basis? How the fuck TikTok's allowed to stay active and steal our kids' info for spying purposes is beyond me. But they've pulled up exactly the same plot set forth in this 1962 film. If you can't see everything that happened from the lead-up to the troubled 2016 election to things happening right now in Republican circles and positions of authority from local government and candidates to the Senate and SCOTUS, wake the fuck up already, jeez. Janet Lee, whose life and handful of films with Tony Curtis we discussed in our Tony Curtis show, and who would go on to star in Psycho, Grand Slam from our Klaus Kinski show, Night of the Lepus, and The Fog from our John Carpenter show, stars as Sinatra's lady friend. Reggie Nalder of Salem's Lot from our Toby Hooper show, The Devil and Max Devlin from our Elliot Gould show, and no less than two pornos, Dracula Sucks and Blue Ice, both reviewed over at thirdicinema.wordpress.com, appears, Leslie Parrish of Sex and the Single Girl from our Tony Curtis show, and The Giant Spider Invasion from my interview with Bill Rabane over at Third Eye Cinema, John MacGyver of Mr. Hobbs Takes a Vacation from our John Saxon show, and Policia Teshi regular and baddie from Sharky's Machine, Henry Silva from our Italian Crime and Burt Reynolds shows, fill out the cast. This is such a prescient warning in the fact that Frankenheimer and company understood that far-right fascism and far-left communism are not opposites, but work hand-in-hand as 360-degree polar analogs to overthrow global freedom and democracies to establish a global axis of authoritarian tyranny in the name of personal profit, power, and demented philosophical credo. Amazing. It really is. And it was so forward-thinking. I've only been warning people of this shit since getting into history and World War II studies as a teen, and so few people really actually get it. Excellent film in both the prescient warning and de facto direct parallel to right-wing political machinations in conjunction with Russia and Communist China right now. It's all over the news. Start paying attention and vote every one of these conspirators out and chill every one of their propagandized domestic terrorist shock troops. We can't allow them to turn 2022 America into the Wild West and use the resulting public outcry to end this nation and everything it ever stood for in response. You really need to see this film and recognize the parallels. They're very obvious. Oh, this is uh, an amazing performance by Frank Sinatra. Bar none, Manchurian candidate. I don't know what made, maybe he be- really believed in this uh, John Frankenheimer film. Maybe he really believed in George Axelrod's story or the Richard Condon who, uh, who wrote a couple of really good films and stories. But I mean, if if, if if I was hard put to say, oh, Frank Sinatra, not a good, never was a good actor. So you got to watch this thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, he, Should be top of my list. Yeah, it was almost like after all he's done, and he has things to come that aren't bad. But it was like this is the penultimate. You know, like even even uh, from here to eternity for him, this was the penultimate picture. This is like it's almost like Frank was believing in this, but he didn't want to come across too much publicly that he was really believing in this stuff. And it's it's terrific. It's terrific. This is, you know, not a lot of credit goes to Frankenheimer. He he directed this and another fucking movie called Seconds mm-hmm. with Rock Hudson. Rock Hudson. With yeah. Rock Hudson, which is probably weirdest fucking movie you <laughs> ever see from the early 60s. But, you know, and, and amongst many others, I really like Frankenheimer's work, although he was hit and miss. You know, over the course of his life, but he, when he was on, he was on. But for Frank Sinatra, terrific performance. Has Frank's first kung fu bite? <laughs> <laughs> 
And it's actually not bad. I, I think there's some choreography involved. And uh, and it has uh, a lot to do with the... Um, they remade this with Denzel Washington and Robin Hitchcock, of all people. Yes, that Robin Hitchcock. Wow. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't bad, but you couldn't approach this. And, you know, Angela Lansbury, Angela Lansbury, the Queen oh, of... Wow, Bro- what an evil bitch in this movie. Yes. I give her a lot of credit. The Queen of Broadway Theater, and she had a... What was her show called on television? Oh, uh, Murder, She Wrote. The... Murder, She Wrote. She played until she fucking died and croaked. Sweeney Todd. <laughs> Sweeney Todd, yes. But, yo, well, that's the whole... Very cleverly wrote, because it plays with the whole matricide thing. You know, like the whole... Uh... He's very much a mama's boy, and she is a yes, psycho. Yes, yes. He's worse than my mother. <laughs> it gets into things like... Mm, and, you know, Frank wasn't young when he did this in 62, but he really, I, I think this is the best, one of the best things he's ever done. Yeah, and I'll give him credit for what you were wondering before, that he actually kind of knew what was going down here, because despite really, like, dropping the slurs left and right, especially in some of these movies we mentioned, mm. Frank was actually rather progressive for his era, believe yeah. it or not. Yes. Uh, I mean, obviously, he hung around with Sammy Davis all the time. Sammy was always getting with, well, not always, but he did get with white ladies like Kim Novak, which is presumably why he lost an eye. But, you know, he was really on top of this stuff, and it's interesting to see that he would be in something that understood issues this much. It's not just like, oh, look, it's another commie scare film. Well, no, because what is he running on? He's running on the far-right ticket, this guy. And what's his aim? Oh, as soon as he gets in power, he's going to overthrow everything and make it a military state, not a communist utopia or some shit. So it was like, yeah, you know, whoever wrote this thing and Frankenheimer, people understood what they were getting into here, no question. And I give him a lot of credit for this film. It's very Quran. It might have been made today. So... Very good film. Oh, very good film. It's, it's one of my favorite films, and I, I encourage anyone who has never seen... Oh, you've got to. Yeah. Yeah, The Manchurian Candidate, 1962. I don't care how old it is. You really have to see this film. Yeah, and it will get you to vote, trust me. <laughs> so... Next up, the list of Adrian Messenger. We covered this one in more depth than our Tony Curtis show, but it's an awful gimmick mystery slash espionage film with the goofy quote-unquote fun sensibilities of a Tony Curtis, Martin Lewis, or Tony Randall film of the era. While it's filled with big names like Curtis, Frank Sinatra, Robert Mitchum, all which we now did shows on, Burt Lancaster, Kirk Douglas, and George C. Scott, you'll never realize it because of some cheap-looking but very much feature-obscuring latex makeup which they pull off to finally reveal themselves at the end credits. It's a terrible sub-British television locker room mystery version of a spy thriller, but they never actually leave the grounds of the estate it's filmed in, and in fact barely even leave the room most of it's set in, so it's all one long, boring, effective talking head chat piece. You know, it's some people say, oh yeah, you gotta check this out, it's like, it's a gimmick, and otherwise it just kind of blows. <laughs> It's, uh, I think we discussed this before, the yeah, show. Yeah, it was on Tony Curtis one. On Tony Curtis show, yeah. It's 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 weird. You will never see its likes again. Uh, I think the Knives Out show, uh, movies try to appropriate that with its all-star cast. But, yeah, yeah, Tony Curtis, Kirk Douglas, Bernie Lancaster, Robin Mitchum. Frank's not George C. Scott, like you said, like my, I'm running out of breath. Exactly know? right. Big stars of the day, and yes, as you said, they were they were partially or well done obscured by the makeup. Um, it's a weird movie, and the it's very lifeless. And yes. you know they tried they tried to uncheese it up by the last few minutes by adding these look like quickly shot things of the actors unmasking themselves in makeup and smiling at you they all had a laugh 
me. It's me. It's, it's, you know, like, whatever. So, Robin and the Seven Hoods, terrible period piece, de facto sequel in name only to Ocean's Eleven. This one brings Edward G. Robinson of Bogart Pictures, Bullets or Ballots, The Amazing Dr. Clitterhouse, and Key Largo, all from our Humphrey Bogart show, and Soylent Green from our Sci-Fi with a Message show. Peter Falk of The Great Race from our Tony Curtis show, The Cheap Detectives, The In-Laws, and Murder by Death, lovable 1930s sidekick Alan Jenkins, also of The Amazing Dr. Clitter House, Batman's King Tut himself, Victor Buno of <laughs> Dean Martin, Matt Helmfilm, The Silencers, Moonchild, which is weird, you gotta see that one, and our Go Ape shows Beneath the Planet of the Apes and Man with the Icy Eyes, The Jala, Barbara Rush of It Came From Outer Space, Can't Stop the Music, and Moon of the Wolf, Tony Randall of Our Man in Marrakesh from our Eurospy show and Scavenger Hunt, Hans Conrad of the Tom Conway Falcon films and the Rankin Bass Hobbit, and Richard Simmons! No, wait, it's not that Richard Simmons. Too bad he might have added some life to this turgid misbar. As you might tell from the title, this is a Depression-era Chicago mobster take on the Robin Hood story, but it isn't. And it's a fucking musical with a schmaltzy soundtrack besides. Did you want to go to your grave knowing you never heard Columbo sing? That's right. Fucking Peter Falk in his best, excuse me, man, one more thing, voice, <laughs> howling and yowling away. And that's right at the start of the damn film. Abominable. Oh, it's not as horrible as you say. <laughs> I think they were a couple of years too late trying to trying to emulate that uh, uh, Ocean's Eleven thing, you know, and, and uh, probably a misstep. Because after Frank did so much good work in the Manchurian Candidate, they would do something like this. But, yo, he's, he, he comes and goes with his choices. Yes. As you hear, a lot of these are pretty bad. <laughs> None but the bravest. Rather unbelievably, the first U.S.-Japan film collaboration. This bizarre and downbeat war film features special effects by Godzilla film and Ultraman series famous Eiji Tsuburaya. And Sinatra leads a small platoon aboard a military transport plane that gets gunned down by a kamikaze zero. Unfortunately, the island is stranded on is already manned by similarly stranded military, a group of Japanese Axis soldiers attempting to build a boat to escape their maroon status. The expected shootouts and scuffles occur. The boat is destroyed and they try to live side by side but remaining segregated. This, as you might expect, goes over like a lead balloon, and everybody but Sinatra and co-star Clint Walker, most memorably of the Saudi and Scream of the Wolf, one of my favorite Richard Matheson and Dan Curtis TV movie co-productions from our Dan Curtis in the 70s show, is dead by credit roll. Yay? Well, you will be able to tell from the sets and a few stars like Takashi Kato of the Battles Without Honor and Humanity films that Toho and Tsuburaya were involved, but it's more on the aesthetic end than any great SFX or what have you. Hell, it may have been a good film if Godzilla showed up to step on everyone. Sadly, he doesn't. Sinatra and a few of the Japanese treat their roles far more seriously than this piece of shit film deserves. Did I mention Sinatra directed this for some ungodly reason? Well, yeah, this is one of the first, if only, films Frank Sinatra directed. And I give him a lot of credit for doing something like this in 1965. You know, you got to remember, even up until this point, uh... Post-war, World War II attitudes to the Japanese were not favorable. You know, put it that way. And so yes. uh, another thing where, where Frank Sinatra was very forward-thinking. You know, he fucking decided to direct this movie with an almost all-Japanese cast? Come on, it's pretty crazy. Um, it's not a great film, but it's a very interesting film in his CV. And, and I think it's a movie that maybe needs to be rediscovered at some point. It's definitely an odd experiment. The odd experiment, as you said, special effects by E.G. Surabaya, who worked on the Godzilla films. You know, not, there's no Godzilla in this film, but 
<laughs> but yo, yo. But not even Rodan for God's sake. Not even Rodan. But, <laughs> but you know what? I, 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 I give, I give it a high commendation because after the things we discussed, Frank Sinatra decided to do a film about war, World War II, directing it and and filming it almost entirely in Japanese. And yeah, you know, it's just like I'm still impressed to this day. It's not a great film, but it's a very impressive movie in a way. Yeah, and I don't think there were subtitles either. I, I don't remember right now. <laughs> They've been there, I believe. Yes. So, Von Ryan's Express, mm. yet another war film, this time set in Italy right before they capitulated to the Allies. Sinatra is a ballsy Air Force colonel who, when captured, demands the head of the POW camp salute him as a senior officer and place him in charge of the inmates. He then butts heads with the former comp commandant, British RAF Major Trevor Howard of The Night Visitor, The Offense from our Sean Connery show, and Craze, which I think we discussed in our Amica show, has everyone burn their clothes right down to their skivvies when Sally refuses to give them a clean change of clothes, and saves Shelley's life by consigning him to the sweatbox rather than face execution after the surrender. But the Nazis still fly into Italy and recapture the freed POWs, loading them onto a train into German-occupied territory. Sinatra and company manage to sneak out by prying up the floorboards of the boxcar and kill their captors, disguising themselves as Nazis and rerouting the train to neutral Switzerland. The rest of the running time is the expected nonsense and casualties, and it ends kind of open-ended with survivors still en route to Switzerland. Yay? Probably the only film to ever feature a Lou Monty reference in the credits, Vito Scotti as Papino, the Italian engineer. Seriously, that's the credit. This one brings together Adolfo Celli of Grand Slam, Thunderball, O.K. Connery, and several Jolly, not to mention Brother Son and Sister Moon, the Catholic movie. All but that discussed in our Klaus Kinski trio of Bond shows, Eurospy, and Italian sleaze shows. The ghost who haunted Mrs. Muir himself, Edward Mulhair, also of Eye of the Devil from our two Donald Pleasant shows, Wolfgang Price of the Dr. Mabuza films from our German Creamy show, Mill of the Stone Women and Cave of the Living Dead, Brad Dexter of McCall and Taris Bulba from our Robert Mitchum and Tony Curtis shows, even Vito Scotti of Herbie Goes Bananas. You also get a brief appearance by Peplo regular Raffaella Cotta, a pleasant-looking Italian redhead who is screwing a Nazi commandant they capture and who very directly offers Sinatra her services, which he oddly balks at. About four minutes later, she winds up dead, so he missed an easy shot there. Directed by Mark Robson, who went from Val Luton classics like The Seventh Victim and Isle of the Dead to crap like Earthquake, this one's filled with jokey, bad, 50s television sitcom humor, punctuated by a horrible Spike Jones meets the Flintstones soundtrack by, of all people, Jerry Goldsmith, who is coolly capable of astronomically superior work, like The Omen and Star Trek The Motion Picture from our William Shatner show. While not as huge as some we can name, this was, oddly enough, a big success, and much faded among entries in the war film genre, but... In reality, while pleasantly aesthetic and fair enough for a casual afternoon viewing, this is far from, say, The Great Escape or Where Eagles Dare, much less The Dirty Dozen or even Escape to Athena from our Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood, Donald Sutherland, and Elliot Gould shows, respectively. For a big-budget Technicolor war film of the 50s-slash-early 60s, it's fair, but it's far from a great film, particularly given its drab pace, lack of tension or excitement, and jokey soundtrack, which is absolutely abominable and more suited to an episode of The Fucking Monsters than a thrilling wartime escape film-slash-action-adventure. <laughs> well, I, I, I some things I agree with you, some things I know. But this was very, this had a very depressing ending because this is the film where Frank is running after the train, he gets fucking gunned down, and this was in a way the beginning of the crossover sixties to seventies, where films with heroes would have the heroes end with undecidedly positive endings. Easy Rider, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah, Easy Rider, Butch Cassidy, yes. Where those are a little bit more enigmatic, 
this was like, are you fucking kidding me? I just spent three hours watching this guy be a hero, and he's got shot down running after the train. Or Vanishing Point from a show at Rampling Show. There's another one. Or Vanishing Point, yeah. And, and, and I liked it very much for that. And Frank is still goodness. He's still. Oh, yeah, good. it's more than watchable. It's just, you know. Yeah, yeah, there's issues with the movie, but it's, you know, it's not as good as something like Rear Eagles Deer or pictures that would come for five years later. But, you know, I think they're trying really hard to make oh, yeah. something kind of epic. And it's got, it's got a pretty, got a pretty impressive cast, even for a lot of them being, we know this face. <laughs> so next up assault on a queen yeah. any hope of what reincarnation this man is drowned Frank Sinatra show and TV director Jack Donahue delivers one of his very few films and it's about as thrilling as that resume would suggest Frank is a marine treasure hunter who finds and restores a sunken U-boat striking Verna Lisi of How to Murder Your Wife and the Statue and Tony Francioso of Fathom Across 110th Street Web of the Spider and Tenebrae from our black exploitation, Klaus Kinski and Dario Argento shows, our fellow treasure hunters who, alongside a former U-boat commander, turn this opportunity into an oceanside heist of the HMS Queen Mary. Sounds a fuck of a lot more exciting than it ever actually is. Algy from the Bulldog Drummond films and Commodore Schmidlap from the Batman movie, Reginald Denny, and 40s noir and 70s police Satoshi regular Richard Conti also get small parts as captain and crew of the Queen Mary. As a heist film, it really kind of sucks. There's precious little tension beyond Francios's racist cracks at the lone black member of the crew, Errol John, and the former Nazi and Sinatra towards the end. And while it's passable enough of a time waster, why waste a time of crap like this when you can watch something good like Hitchcock's To Catch a Thief, Kinski's Grand Slam from a Kinski show, or any episodes of It Takes a Thief or Mission Impossible, the latter of which we also did a show on? Yeah, yeah. Why isn't this better? That's that's a big question. And considering it's coming from a, a Rod Sterling screenplay, you got a you had a decent cast here. Oh yeah. Including Frank. It's like it's just sometimes things don't work. And I think it's down to the director because, you know, he's just a TV director. And Frank is yeah, he was just a TV director. And uh, I don't know why this gentleman was chosen or maybe other people opted out or this, you know, who knows. <laughs> but interesting cast for the most part and a familiar cast. But I wish this could have been better. Yeah, it was just Same here. Yeah, it has potential, but it doesn't. It just yeah. falls flat. Yeah, this doesn't work. No. So next up, Tony Rome. Somebody will squeeze something out of Tony the day Georgia elects a colored governor. Sinatra is a PI with a gambling problem who stumbles into an investigation of a wealthy blackout drunk, Sue Lyon of Lolita from our Stanley Kubrick show, who's been sleeping around and acting the party girl, quote, losing some expensive jewelry in the process. Kind of a dirty business, isn't it? How'd you get into it? Well, there's a compulsion among the lower classes to get money to eat once in a while. Maybe you heard the rumor about it. Her rich father, Simon Oakland, Kolchak's apoplectic boss of the Night Stalker films and series, discussed in our Dan Curtis in the 70s show, hires Sinatra to figure out what's going on. Slut? That's just a nickname. Only my dearest friends use it. You can hang a sign on yourself, one that says occasionally promiscuous. There's the expected Norris twists and turns, and Sinatra gets smacked around and led by the nose, but less than typical of the genre, or the 70s neo-noir that result from it, as discussed in our Elliot Gould, Robert Mitchum, and even Sean Connery shows, and hottie Jill St. John of such disparate films as Diamonds Are Forever from our trio of Bond shows, to Jerry Lewis's Who's Minding the Store, provides enough eye candy and snappy innuendo-laden banter to satisfy all the necessary credentials. It's a lot more likable and entertaining than The Detective, and it comes very much recommended for fans of stuff like the Mission Impossible 
series, which he did a show on, Bullet from a Steve McQueen show, or even Lady Ice from a Donald Sutherland show. I always liked this film. No, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's surprisingly well done. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun, and it's actually, <laughs> I hate to say this, but it's actually better than you think it is. Oh, yeah. One thing you skipped over was uh, Naked Runner. Yes. Uh, have you seen that? No, I have not. This is Frank's very, one of very, Frank Sinatra's one of very few Euro spy entries. Really? Yeah. Directed by Sidney J. Fury, who did a couple of those uh, Michael Caine. Uh, what, the Harry Palmer films? Harry Palmer pictures, yes. So we got Peter Vaughn, Devin Nesbitt, Nadia Gray. You know, Edward Fox, he's all Euro kind of people. Frank plays a former OSS guy whose uh, child is uh, kidnapped. And this is produced by Brad Dexter, who everybody remembers from my supporting role in the first... Uh, he was one of those Hercules uh, pepper fish. No, 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 no. Um, the Magnificent Seven. And so... Very strange movie. It's it's Frank Sinatra in a Euro spy movie. And I mean, it's 67. It's one of the few times he's ever done this. And it's it's got this very, it's really weird. You can't find this anywhere. I saw this in the theater, and I saw it in Drivinch. <laughs> but it's pretty good. It's pretty raw. It's very slow. But it's another one of those really good, Frank Sinatra performances that needs to be rediscovered. That being, I think it was a Warner Brothers Seven Arts production. That being said, like, I mean, is this thing ever going to come out again? Who the <laughs> hell knows? So from that, uh, did you do the detective? Yes, I did. Yes. So what's going to happen to you? You're not getting any younger. Probably the same thing as my old man. I wound up in the scrap heap. You know, you can make it. You can make it big. But uh, you've never been able to kiss ass. Frank was a tough cop with an actual heart and a surprising compassion towards the young junkies, hookers, and most emphatically still prosecutable homosexuals who his job forces him to encounter. He's clearly in the wrong job because, like Paul Newman in Fort Apache of the Bronx, he not only cares about the folks his peers in the courts only want to incarcerate and sentenced to death remorselessly and without exception, but has little tolerance towards so-called quote-unquote authority, much less the thin blue line, and categorically refuses to play the game and sycophantically suck up for advancement. Story of my life to a T. <laughs> if, I, if I get you through this, it'll be for the department, not for you. If you get them through this, if the civil rights group doesn't take care of you and the department doesn't take care of you, you keep your eye on me, Mr. Harmon. He also gains the attention of a younger woman he wants to marry, Lee Remick of the Satan Bug and Telephone from our Charles Bronson and Donald Pleasant shows, but who, despite feeling the same, she seems to be getting a piece on the side as well. This may all be one ongoing flashback as there's talk of him being an embittered divorcee at the same time. Who knows, it's pretty damn confusing the way the film's structured. Tony Rosante, a bird with a crystal plumage from our Dario Argento show, is the crazy young gay man he badgers into a false confession, who winds up going to the electric chair for it, and a young Jackie Bissett of Bullet from our Steve McQueen show, The Deep, and Buñuel's Discreet Charm of the Bourgeois, takes what was supposed to be a Mia Farrow role as the wife of a prominent closet queer at the center of the investigation, complete with awful Farrow-style ultra-short crop do. <laughs> Yet another installment in the Sinatra was the real dick files. The reason Jackie Bissett took the Mia Farrow role was Frank's erstwhile wife got held over schedule by Roman Polanski on the Rosemary's Baby shoot. So rather than moving the shoot, filming around her or anything else a normal person would do to allow his wife to join him. He gets so pissed off he serves his divorce papers. What a guy. Rudy Giuliani lookalike Robert Duvall of the <laughs> film of Nash, Bullet, and Lady, <laughs> Lady Ice from, 
from our Elliot Gould, also one of Steve Queen shows, Jack Klugman of Hill Mafia from our Eddie Constantine show, and of all people, the famous boxer Sugar Ray Robinson as Frank's partner, oh, and also Lloyd Bachner of Satan's School for Girls from our Satan in the 70s show, all appear as does Ralph Meeker of the Dirty Dozen and the Night Stalker from our Bronson and Dan Curse in the 70s shows, directed by Gordon Douglas, whose career ranges from my favorite Little Rascals slash R-Gang short, Spooky Hookie, to them, Slaughter's Big Ripoff, and much mocked camp classic Viva Knievel, the detective comes off like a darker version of the Tony Rome films, also helmed by him and featuring Sinatra within the span of a single year. The latter two are actually a lot better than the detective. Well, okay, Tony Rome is anyway. Not to mention less quote-unquote serious and grim. But the three films are very much of a piece, as you might expect. It's definitely worth checking out. It is a good film, but it's a lot darker. Oh, yeah, it's a good film. Uh, it's a dark film. And uh, I was interested to see in 1968, Frank Sinatra was willing to go this route. You know, he, you know he's performing in, I guess, Vegas and you know elsewhere. And he's got his Rat Pack thing going on. They're doing a thing. He's got the boys. And at the same time, he decides to do this film, which, as you well said, you know, is is not down on on homosexuals, not down on taboo subjects, and, and not down on certain things. So here's the thing: we never knew what Frank Sinatra was fucking thinking, and but maybe movies like this gave us like like a hint that he was like really more open than we actually thought he was. Yeah, that's it's, it's so maddening about him because half the time he comes off like an all boozy, you know, boomer racist, whatever. But then the other half of the time, and even in those films, he's like. Now, this guy's actually rather progressive. Very progressive. <laughs> so you can't really peg him. Very progressive. And I think, here's the thing, and I, th- I thought that's why this show was worth doing, that maybe he wasn't the boozy, hey, look at us, you know, drunk and, you know, men about town, there's a lot of them. But maybe, actually, Frank Sinatra was a very progressive individual, and as he got forward on with the stuff, he was like, I want to do this. So, But then again, he's fucking his best buddy's wife there, so to get well, uh, dirt on the Kennedys for... <laughs> I mean, you know, the guy's all over the place. It's really hard to peg him. So, anyway, Lady in Cement. This hipper, lighter tone, but far more insubstantial follow-up to Tony Rome features our hapless hero as an ersatz marine treasure hunter, allowing for some nice underwater footage where he fights off a shark and finds a blowsy British blonde butt-naked standing upright, feast encased in a block of cement. And yes, while you don't get a full frontal or even nice rear view, <laughs> her massive yabos are in full view for a surprisingly long time. I have what you might call a drinking problem. I wouldn't have noticed. Oral compensation, that's what I call it. What you shrink call it. Just being a drunk. I wonder how it would have turned out if I hadn't inherited a fortune. I could think of a couple of occupations. Raquel Welch of Fathom, the three and four Musketeers films from our Oliver Reed show, and Fuzz from our Burt Reynolds show, is here in her heyday before she got over the top as a strident feminist, displaying all her charms in her first poolside scene, despite shortly thereafter donning an awful Joanne Worley wig that doesn't even match her complexion or eyebrows. In one of the more amusing scenes, Frank goes to a drag show and hits up a tranny for info. You look beautiful. Want to make 35 cents? Hey, don't laugh. I've had three offers already today. There are lots of cheap gags interspersed throughout, like the painter who specializes in zoptic portraits of skinny girls, whose model really has to take a leak, and the soundtrack is super cheesy and very 60s, like a Pizzicato 5 sample or the theme to the old To Tell the Truth show. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. 
Big Blowsy Laney Kazan of John Waters Divine in the Old West Epic, Lust in the Dust, and Phone Sex Workers vs. Killer Clown Slasher Out in the Dark also appears briefly, but it's not half the film its predecessor was. I saw this one first as a teenager, so I liked it more than it really deserved, but in retrospect, it's okay, but it's kind of a letdown for fans of Tony Rome in almost every way. Yeah, it's not as good as Tony Rome, but, uh, um... (laughs) (laughs) Trying to think of the nice way to put this. For late 60s, 1968, if you like your boozy (laughs) private eyes, anti-heroes, and your buxom... Sort of like my camera, the, the TV series. Yeah, it's sort of like the my camera, but a little bit more sleazy. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a, it's a shame because coming off of Tony Rome and coming off of the very good the detective, it's just like a step back. Yeah, it's uh, still entertaining enough, but yeah, it's entertaining for sure. It's not it's not subpar, Frank, and, and it, it's it's got stuff going on there. So he actually did a couple of things. Dirty Dingus McGee, he co-hosted those That's Entertainment clip fests of 40s movies mm. and something on TV called Contract on Cherry Street, but he effectively retired from filmmaking for a while. But then he made a comeback in 1980. Oh, wait, you're going to leave this up to me? Uh, yeah, if you're going to cover those. <laughs> you bastard. It's not like no. crap movies. But <laughs> That's Dirty Dingus McGee, I remember seeing this in the theater. It's a Burt Candy. You know, Burt Candy did all these uh, Western... I don't know how do you call them western revivals this is about the time 1970 the western movies were the american ones had like sexuality nudity and i was shocked to see most of in the trailer it's directed by burt kennedy again most of the trailer had like a naked and drunk frank sinatra and like a fucking hot tub <laughs> And, you know, a picture had George Kennedy and Jackson, Lois Nettleton, Jack Lamb, so on and so forth. And it was pretty much about the town. Between Frank and George Kennedy, did they have a bar? It couldn't have been an open bar. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though. He played like the, the town drunk, but it was actually a former gunslinger who kind of tries to get his act together to pretend that, to protect the town. It was just a weird fucking movie, and it was just like, what's going on here? And you know, it's, it it makes sense that that was the last Sinatra movie for a couple of years because people just didn't get it. Yeah. So 1980, he made a strange short-lived comeback with something called The First Deadly Sin. Mm. The Lorenzo's Oil of Slasher films, courtesy of two retirees and one who is finally about to become one. A perfectly awful schmaltz score by Gordon Jenkins, who had scored Sinatra's Jolly Christmas album a few decades prior, and some of the most pedestrian, old-fart, BBC-style mystery television direction you'll ever encounter in actual cinema, from retired director Brian G. Hutton, who last worked in 1973, of where Eagles Dare and King Creole, from our Clint Eastwood and Elvis film shows, make this ostensible slasher-slash-police procedural an incredibly tedious slog. Much like the abominable Thor Love and Thunder, this bait-and-switch takes a premise about a New York City in the last two years-style hammer killer of random old folks and middle-agers, and instead dumps a depressing story about a past retirement-age Sinatra, visibly stooped with age, trying to solve one last case of the objections and threats of the precinct captain, Anthony Zerby of the Omega Man, Farewell My Lovely, and Kiss Meets the Fan of the Park, from our science fiction in the 70s and Robert Mitchum shows, although we didn't cover Kiss Meets the Fan of the Park, while his menopausal but still much younger lady friend, Faye Dunaway of the Thomas Crown Affair, Chinatown, the Three and Four Musketeers films, from our Steve McQueen, Roman Polanski, and Oliver Reed shows, and camp classic Mommy Dearest and Supergirl is dying in the hospital. I think it's some kind of renal failure. And we keep seeing nigh inaudibly whispering scenes of Sinatra visiting her in her deathbed throughout the course of the entire film. 
in the final minutes, and mostly due to some well-beyond-the-call-of-duty legwork by a dizzy old coroner rather than the ineffectual and doddering Sinatra, he locates the perp and turns out to be some rich and powerful fuck who confesses, but mocks Sinatra that, just like our prior president, he'll never face consequences. He even has the balls to sue those investigating him. Uh, I mean, <laughs> calls the cops on Sinatra as a break-and-enter. Sinatra retires effective immediately and watches Dunaway die in the hospital. Roll credits. What the fuck? Maniac and a recurrently cameoing pal of both Sly Stallone and Al Pacino, each of whom we did shows on, Joe Spinell, and Capricorn 1, Airport 77, and Supergirl's Brenda Vaccaro, the first of which we spoke to in our Elliot Gould show, both get bit parts, but this is the sorriest excuse for a murder mystery slasher come police procedural ever committed to celluloid, and like the equally horrifically awful Love and Thunder, promises to be a very different, and needless to say much better film, than the depressing, pointless piece of shit drama it actually is. Well, did you know Polanski was supposed to direct this? I heard something like that, but for some reason he didn't. Yeah. Oh, probably Roman, because of the, the case. Roman Polanski was supposed to direct this for Columbia, but that's when they brought the statutory rape charges against him, so Brian G. Hutton took over the production. And so, yeah, this is a weird kind of wacko movie, but the one I liked a bit better was actually Contract on Cherry Street. Which was made in 77. It was a TV movie. It's a TV movie, but it's probably one of the better TV movies. You got Mar- Martin Balsam, Werner Bloom, Harry Guardino, Henry Silver. You mentioned him. Uh, Michael Norrie, a bunch of other guys. And so Sinatra plays a detective inspector who's leaving, leading his own anti-crime unit against, you know, the mafia. It's really quite good. Also very downbeat, which is probably why it doesn't have the... Um, uh, nobody remembers it. Nobody remembers it because, like, Frank gets gunned down. Yeah, you think it's going to be a cop film. You think it might be a slasher film. You know, kinds of, it could have went body double direction or dress to kill. or you It's know. really good, though. I, I actually would recommend this really? more than more than the picture that he we just covered because Contract and Cherry Street is kind of, like, forgotten in a way. But it really has a really good – we can say, well, Lou, what's the final – Frank Sinatra performance that in a film that you could recommend. And I say, yeah, this one. And not Cannibal Run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was in Cannibal Run too, which is, you know, not really a cameo, but, you know, the, we talk about Cannibal Run, the original one in our Burt Reynolds yeah, show. he was in Cannibal Run. Too. And he was in Who Framed Roger Rabbit? <laughs> uh, he plays Singing Sword, but, right. you know. But that was basically but I have to say, so we, we began this, I don't know if it's included in our event. I, I decided in the late 90s, that Frank Sinatra was going on tour, and I was like, I'm going to go see him at Radio City Music Hall. Maybe it's a great way to end this. He had two tall... Uh, Barstools. Yes, two tall Barstools, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> and one had a bottle of Jack, and one had a glass of, of some ice, and one was for him. And he was like, this is my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and he did a decent enough set. Yeah, he forgot some words. You know, the, the band was led by Frank Sinatra Jr. You know, big band, full band, you know. And I was, like, so glad to see him live. It was a thing, you know. I had never seen Frank Sinatra live. So I went to, I, I didn't do that often, but I went to the Radio City uh, stage door. Stage door, And here comes Frank Sinatra. He came out and he had this leather jacket with the American fucking flag on the back. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, I get to see the guy live, close, and in person, you know. So, yeah, I got to say, he did some really impressive films. And 
he really, there were some things really, really stepped up, and I thought his acting was not bad at all. Yeah, this is not like when we did the Elvis film show, which is, you know, fun, but comedy the whole way through. Yeah. He, he actually, even when a lot of his films sucked, he did do his best to do a decent performance. And, and okay, you could say he's a bit one-note, because, you know, he's always kind of doing a similar performance and similar uh, persona. But, you know, he's actually good. He can hold his own against, I want to say, much better, but much more established actors who have been doing this stuff yes. all their lives. Yes. And he won't be embarrassed. You know, he's, he's an actual creditable member of the cast. So, you know, a lot of respect to him. I, as a singer and as an actor, despite all the, the jokes we've made and all his personal foibles that we've discussed. And, you know, honestly, who doesn't love Sinatra to some degree or another? And people don't talk about his films that often. They say, oh, yeah, he acted in some stuff. But it's not like, oh, yeah, Frank Sinatra, the, the actor. So here you go. Yeah, if I'm going to leave you on a note, maybe the both of us, the Manchurian Candy. Yes. The one. Definitely go with that one. And if you want, like, one that's just relaxing and fun, go for Tony Rome or even a sequel, Lady in Cement. And The Detective's also a really good one, too, if you want to go for all three of those. So, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoy our little drawing room chat on the chairman of the board. Uh, next time, we're going to be doing a show, I believe, on Jackie Bissett, Jacqueline yes. Bissett. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker, musician, and like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1, and we're on Podbean at thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. We're on iTunes, and if you're a particular, it's ID 55340244. Otherwise, just look us up under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. You can do the same thing for Spotify. We're there. And we're also on Amazon Podcasts. So look us up the same way. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So uh, anything else you wanted to close out with? I'm having a lot of struggle with my cat here. I <laughs> can't. Okay. Now, thanks for listening, and uh, remember, what modern-day podcast show would actually speak pretty positively about the films of Frank Sinatra? Us. So, <laughs> no, no, I mean, and we're not, we're not fucking around with it. You know, we're, like, we're, we're pretty much on board with what's going on, and uh, we respect the guy's work in the most part. And, you know, that's what we do here. You know, you know even some people whose work was denigrated by others, you know, like, Hey, you know, we, we watch things and we, we try to, hey, that performance was good. That's what we're about. Yeah. Come on, we did a Tony Curtis show. <laughs> we did a Tony Curtis show. We did yeah. a Elvis film show. What the hell? <laughs> we got Eddie Murphy show coming up. Eddie, Eddie yes. fucking rocks. We're going to do an so, Eddie Murphy show. That is true. Very soon. Eddie did a lot of good stuff. And it's going to be a tough one because Eddie Murphy, 48 hours. Yeah, you might forget if kids nowadays probably just know him for doing crap like The Nutty Professor or his yeah. Shrek and that kind of stuff. But no, he actually was a creditable action comedy guy and guy, which is also why we were talking about Whoopi Goldberg in the early days. Or yeah. when we mentioned previously, you know, the Billy Crystal, Gregory Hines running scared. I mean, some of these people actually made decent movies, believe it or not. I can't believe that I saw recently, as a as, uh, final note this, because we mentioned Eddie Murphy, they're actually shooting Bubba Hill's Cup 4 now. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and everybody's back. Nice. Just like his Coming to America, the sequel to that that he did recently. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, guys, the guys who played the other cops in the Beverly Hills Cop films, they're back. I'm like, oh. I wonder if he's going to dig up Nick Nolte and do more 48 Hours, the third one. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how many going Yeah. That's a nice there you go. All right. Anyway, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this. We actually worked with a series on this one. 
because, uh, again, we, I, I think we both respected Frank Sinatra as an actor, and uh, we want to talk about like, the movies that we thought you guys should like pay attention to. You might want to check out. So thanks for listening. Yes. Take care. All right. All at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We'll try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio.
Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the Katie, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Testing. I've been testing. And my heart beats so that I can only see the recording never ends. Hello? Hello, can you Oh, hear now me? I hear you. Yes, I do. I don't know. I'm banging my head against the fucking wall. <laughs> well, the first time was me, because like I said, I came on here when you pinged me. It kept going through the speakers, and I had it already plugged in, so I you know, put in different ports, kept doing the Skype test, nothing. So I had to reboot the whole damn computer, but then after that, it's fine, so I don't know what the hell's going on with your new setup or whatever. Did you get another headset? I got another headset, which has a built-in mic, and uh, how do I sound? Okay? So yeah, you sound fine. Yep. Yeah, and... Um... The mic is a retractable, you know, not one yeah. of those you pull out, it's built in, and okay. it's uh, highly rated, okay. cheaper than the other one, which I sent back. I think I told you I was sending it back. And I'm like, are you kidding nowadays? With go online for the instructions and the instructions. Oh, I hate like, that. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know how to use this. Come on. Man. And half the time they're like universal symbols are really, really curt. So it's like, that doesn't address my problem. That's just like a basic how to plug something in, you know. From stick the microphone into the headset. Duh. <laughs> and usually in the past, YouTube has been very, very helpful to me, I will admit, for issues like this. But a lot of these guys are like, hey, I plugged it in. Wow, it sounds great, right? Like, oh, sure. <laughs> 
Show me what you're doing, man. <laughs> nah, they love that shit where it's like, oh, I got an unboxing. Who gives a shit? <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't mind unboxing. It's like you have to show what you're doing step by step. So, yes. Uh, okay, this is what I'm doing wrong, or this is what I need to do. Although he's going, see, it's plugged in. Wow, does it sound great? Man, you can hear my voice. Like, I, 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 I don't know what you're doing. Did you, you know? use it for the last episode of All the Calls of Prague? That's why you put one up recently. I have to take all three of those down. Why? What happened? Well, they went out through Podbean, okay. and I have the originals on my on my hard drive mm-hmm. on the desktop. They sound fine. And I contacted Podbean. I said, what is all this distortion? Mm-hmm. Oh, we don't know. I said, no, no. You, you, I have this thing. I, I can fix the sound, but you're pushing it up at so much volume. And then the last one, you have to really turn it up because it's kind of low. And I'm like, you know... <laughs> I, I do research. It's not easy to do these things. And it's like I feel like shit from the shot. So I kind of psych myself up. I got to do this. I got all these things weighing on me. And I got to do the show. And, you know, I, I thought it was a decent show. I'm like, damn, you got to turn the volume up so high. It's like to hear it. I'm like, come on. No, and the Podbean guy, I know they helped you. Yeah. But they're like, we'll get back to you. We'll investigate. Like, come on. Fuck. It's three days later. I haven't heard you. Wow. I mean, it can't be as bad as Blog Talk. You haven't experienced the horrors until you've dealt with Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to, uh, well, I'm going to try to do it this way, which is using, this is what we did last show, which is I'm going through the uh, the focus right. Okay. And the Shure mic, and I'm actually using my monitor speakers to hear you rather than a headset. Right. And uh, so you're coming out like you're sitting right next to me. Yeah. And, um... This is what we did last year, but I'm just trying to think, like, I want to make this better. You know, I, I really want to make the sound of the voice better and all this. Yeah, no, you sound very good, actually. Yeah, but, like, I spent all this money on this fucking shit. It's crazy. Well, the only good thing about having to take those shows down is you said you still have it on the computer. Yeah. So, presumably, the original sound okay. So, it's just a matter of fixing whatever the hell this distortion issue is on their end. <laughs> I was definitely on their end because uh, if you saw any of that or the picture, at least, you know, mm-hmm. I got this new backdrop. I, I yep. looked at the hardware store. I extended it. So, hey, it looks like a wall finally. Mm-hmm. She came home just as I finished it. And she's like, what the hell is that? <laughs> I'm like, I just finished the show. Oh, let me see. Oh, it sounds like shit. <laughs> and I was like, does it? It's, look, listen to this. Why does it sound good there? I have no idea. Yeah. You know, and remember I told you after um, after arguing with Podbean guys, I couldn't trans transfer to YouTube. Right. Not automatically transfer to YouTube. And so I'm like, oh, cool. I don't have to upload for like an hour plus. You know, which means like it's on my hard drive, on my desktop. I have to go into YouTube and upload it because it wasn't working via Podbean. They did it in about 10 minutes. Nice. <laughs> but of course it came out shitty. <laughs> It came out shitty, and I'm partially embarrassed because, like, these are decent shows. I'm promoting new shows, and I'm it's lo- I'm looking better. I got a backdrop, and I'm like, are you fucking... You can't be as embarrassed as two things that happened to me on Third Eye. It's old enough that I can just talk about because who cares now? And they're still up there, the fixed versions, obviously. One time I interviewed this guy from this shitty band, Bloodbound, mm-hmm. right? Really early on when I started doing music, and I'd already done a whole bunch of film podcasts, directors, actors, DVD presidents, whatever. I started doing metals, you know, somewhere in the first year or 
so. And one of the first ones I had done was with this guy. And for some fucking reason, every time the Skype recorder, it wouldn't come out right. It would sound like shit. So we had to do that show. If he sounds really cold, more so than you would expect, that's why. Because we had to do that show three friggin' times. Every time I was like, okay, I think we got it. Boom, gone again. All block talk issues, of course. So anyway, the other one that was really worse was I had scheduled during the Super Bowl. I got Ron Keel on, which, you know, okay, he had the band Keel. You know, a lot of people know him from there. He was with Steelers. We talked about Ingve. You know, the guy's been around for a long time. Okay, and then he had this weird detour into country music, and I don't know what the hell he's doing. And at the time, he had a comeback album, which was pretty damn good. You know, if you like the third album from Keel, you'll definitely like the comeback album. Okay, fine. So I get him on. He's a little bit irascible, but we had a good conversation. The problem is, I did this whole promotion for, oh, yeah, you know, anybody that doesn't watch freaking sports here, you can do something during the Super Bowl, right? So a whole bunch of people interested in this. If you look at the original thing, there's a whole bunch of hits, you know, a lot of a lot of women especially, but, you know, a lot of people went and tuned into this damn thing. Blog talk somehow <laughs> managed to fuck it up so that instead of running for the two hours or so that we usually talk, it ran for, like, 42 minutes or something, and it ended. Even though it was still playing, I and mean, the podcast was up there, they just cut it off. A lot oh, of it ended abruptly? Wow. Yes! So what the fuck is this? So I found out about it later, and it was like, you know, I'm pulling my hair out. like, what the hell? It just blog talk, it was a horror show. Any prospective podcasters out there, I know they say, oh, it's easy. Uh, bullshit. Everything comes out AM radio quality, and there's always a problem, especially if you're doing it live. I had so many problems live recording. Not even just Third Eye, even when we're doing that, I level with Matt and all that. Blog talk was, before we hooked up, was my early days. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> when I was working on the ages of this uh, group of... Uh, Crazy motherfuckers who <laughs> invited me to do it. Mm-hmm. And then we did a couple of shows. And then they had an agenda. Oh, Lewis, you shouldn't be covering this because this other podcaster did. I'm like, well, if you're not letting us know, how the hell are we going to know? Yeah, exactly. You know, and then the. <laughs> and that's weird anyway. It's like, who cares? Someone else did it. Did well, this is the, oh, Chris <laughs> McGibbon. Yeah, you fucking blocked the bastard because uh, I had some friends off of that too. Nice guys. And he was like, he was like fucking running like a Trumpy Nazi fucking hell. He was like, <laughs> well, this is the way it goes. If you're going to work for I said, you know what? I fucking quit. <laughs> and the guy I was doing a show with, I told him, hey, I can take this shit. It's like, I'm not. I'm doing it for nothing. Come on, yeah. man. I remember you talking about this in the early podcast that we did together. Yeah, years ago, right? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, tell, I tell the buddy, Rich, and I said, Rich, I'm, I'm doing this for fucking nothing. And we just added a woman for four shows. Yeah. And I said, Rich, you know, <laughs> you, you take it over. Yeah, you can't deal with this fucking guy. Yeah, we tried to add a woman here, but you know, that didn't pan out in the end. Maybe someday. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I've been reading a lot of this woman's pose, and she's mm-hmm. a fucking psychopath. So maybe you're, <laughs> uh, you're a friend of hers, and so yes. am I. And I've been reading a lot of her shit lately, and it's like, Hello, you got some problems? Yeah, no, she's definitely angry about a lot of things, but you know, I get it, so I'm, I'm okay I with it. I get yeah. some of it, but <laughs> some of it, I'm like, where are you lashing out? <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot of lashing out, so. but you know, I've been there, so it's like, <laughs> I don't really yeah, care. Yeah, I, I don't lash out anymore because, I mean, the uh, last few days, but the Trump, we can say here, because I'm going to give it a fuck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All the Trump stuff going on, I would love to say stuff, but 
Nolly was a band a few times for 15, 20, 30 days. Oh, friggin' Facebook. Yeah, yeah. They I, kept banning me for that all the time. It's like, they don't ban the Trumpsters. They can say whatever they want. I'm going to go burn it. Why is that? The post office. But anybody that says, oh, yeah, these guys are friggin' Nazis and we've got to shut this terrorist down, you get banned for like anywhere between, like you said, you know, a couple of days to a month. So when like, your band you. is over, your post will be moved to the lowest of the feed for like 30 yep. days, which means nobody sees whatever you say for a long Somebody time. Somebody said that to me recently. It's like, I haven't seen your stuff for a while. What's going on? I'm like, probably freaking Facebook. <laughs> well, no, that's what they do. Like once, they, um, once your band is over, they move it so deep below. Oh, you went to the show, you know, like last month. <laughs> Yep. Oh, I was uh, very pleased. I saw Roxy Music last week. Yeah, you mentioned that, right? And, you know, Ray Manzarek is one of these guys. He has a Facebook page, and, you know, he's a guitar player in Roxy Music. Uh, mm-hmm. Had 801 and a couple other things. He played with Gilmore a lot of times in his live shows. Different from Ray Manzarek from The Doors, by the way. <laughs> I'm sorry. He's got one of those long names. Ray Manzarek. <laughs> yeah, close and, enough. And, <laughs> sorry, sorry. And, and, uh, so I said, oh, you were, great. you were great at the garden. So he actually was like, he actually responded to that on his page. I was like, wow. Nice. nice. <laughs> ah, he was terrific. You know, I didn't check his age. Uh, the guy was in fine form. He's the leader of that band. You know, it's, uh... Well, everybody thinks Ferry and Eno right away because, you know, Ferry's the front man and Eno's notorious for a lot of reasons. <laughs> but... <laughs> Well, yeah, the thing was interesting. Eddie Jobson was originally announced for that tour, then mysteriously not. So Mm -hmm. uh, before we go to the show, so far it sounds good. So we move Richard Burton to after Eddie Murphy? Yeah, it wasn't planned. It was just like, you know what, I can get this stuff for Jackie Bissett, which will be the next one. And then I was like, what am I going to do next? What's easy? And I'm in the mood for lately watching all those freaking Whoopi Goldberg movies. And we'll trade Eddie Murphy. Why not? Yeah, I'm not against Whoopi. I'm actually, she's kind of all over the place with her stuff. That's the trick. Yeah, as far as her views on The View, the show she <laughs> she's all over the place. But Yes, that's the thing. She's not always righteous. This stuff is like, what? what yeah, she's about? all over the place. It's like whatever <laughs> she feels at the moment. Um, but, uh, you know, from the color purple and uh, Jumpin' Jack Flash, which is fun. And, you know, Let's see. First, we saw Sister Act, both of them. Then we watched, she wanted us to see Made in America for some reason, which is <laughs> a piece of work. Then she brought home Eddie, which is amusing. Believe it or not, for a sports movie, it's actually funny. It's a, Yeah, it's amusing. Yeah. And then uh, we watched Fatal Beauty, which we had caught part of on a stream. Which and is, I was like, you know okay, what? yeah. Yeah, it's all right. So we saw that one again, you know, fully. We saw Jumpin' Jack Flash and... I've got Burglar over there. So, you know, it's like, I don't watch a lot of these damn things. You know, if you want to do it, I'm up for it. <laughs> I, I'd only do it, you know, no offense to Whoopi. Uh, you know, I'd only do it if you if you think we can get something pulled out of that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we can put it to a back burner where maybe one day we're infused with, yes, let's cover her. We don't have to do it right away because we already got a woman coming up. We've got two uh, African-American folks coming up. So, you know. Yeah. We don't have to front load it. I'm just saying it's, it was something that I was thinking about. No, no, no. It's not a bad idea at all. I mean, I, I really appreciate her when she's putting forward. I mean, she's, when she puts it out there, she's very, very good. Right. Her and Franklin Angela, I never got that. <laughs> How about her and Ted dancing? Remember that? <laughs> I never got that either. Yeah. It's like, right. So please test this. Let me know if I sound good. We're, we're ready to roll. Hello? Hello, hello? Hello. 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 Can you hear me? Yes. Can okay, you hear good. Me? Yes. You're not as booming as you were before, but I can still hear you. Wait, 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 wait. 
How's this? That sounds much better. Yep, that's better. Okay, okay, all right. Yeah, because that recording was like, wow, it's the best we sounded in a while. <laughs> really? Yeah, don't ask me. I'm tweaking this. I'm actually taking photographs of the settings. Don't fucking laugh. <laughs> I'm actually taking photographs of the settings when I'm doing this with you to see, okay, so what's working here and, you know, what isn't. Not. Right. Yeah. But no, it sounds great. You know how it is with this stuff. Thank God. You, you always think like, oh, okay, yeah, I know all this tech stuff and you know, no chat shit when it comes down to the, when it really comes down to the wire, everything could possibly go wrong. Being in this area, in this field, you know, you know a little bit more than the average schmuck, but still, <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. No, no, that's what I've been doing. The last show you said sounded pretty good, yeah. so I took photos. So I will take a photograph of this one as well. It's like, cause since this is working. Yeah. That's working very well, actually. <laughs> and uh, I, I will take a photo of this because I know what my settings are. Mm -hmm. And um, all right, let's go. All right.